The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So Mark is <clears throat> away again, and I'm one of the many community leaders that stepped forward in his absence to um, sub for Mark. Um, did I say my name? My Okay, my name is Kyoko Katayama. Um, I'm sitting here being aware that each of you is utterly unique and different and maybe also similar. And how little I know about the details of your life. And yet, there is a sense of shared aspiration and care, a dynamic unity called community. It's kind of amazing. So, this morning, I'm going to talk about that. Earlier in the month, a dear Dharma friend, Patrice Kelsch, who is here among us, has given two great Dharma talks on wise view, wise intention, and white racial frame. So for some reason, if you missed it, I really encourage you to listen to her talks on the Dharma Seeds on Common Ground website. So, like Patrice, along with um, 28 others, I too participated in a 10-week-long anti-racism study and um, dialogues community circle. And what was most impactful for me was learning the particulars of the historic legacies <coughs> of the slavery and genocide of the native people. Can you hear me okay? Okay. And and the story's not told, of course, in the textbooks. I felt and still feel a very complicated deep grief. It's sobering to realize how little we know about each other's stories. The experience of the circle has given me more courage to speak my racial truth within this community, as well as willingness to bear witness to uncomfortable moments, both as a person of color and as a person of many privileges, without just despairing or disappearing. So um, I even discovered that I had, quote-unquote, racist thoughts against the squirrels in my garden. <laughs> Our yard with seven mature oak trees has created a perfect condition for squirrel metropolis. And two oak trees poke right through our deck where we cut holes around the trunk. The myriad branches as their streets dotted with their 
homes along the way. And I see them scurrying effortlessly from one branch to the next and down the main highway of the trunk. Well, I happen to be a gardener, and squirrels reap havoc in the yard. In the spring, I plant colorful flowers in pots to put on the deck. <coughs> the squirrels dug up the pots, uprooting the plants, scattering dirt and wilting young, young flowers. I found them yesterday after I replanted. Last year, they chewed up even the thickest of the plastic lid and tipped the, the pail full of sunflower seeds meant for the birds. All the tulip buds, every single one of them in my garden, were eaten, leaving only the sad stems and the remnants of red petals scattered on the ground. Well, maybe it was actually timid rabbits who did it, but it's easier to blame everything on the squirrels. So one morning, when I saw through the kitchen door a squirrel chewing on something on the deck table, I felt anger and exasperation. You are nothing but a destroyer of my tulips and my flower pots. And in the next nanosecond, Following this thought, the reactive mind made a declaration that therefore all the squirrels are bad and stupid. <laughs> the awareness observed how the mind connected yesterday's chewed tulips with today's squirrel as if she did it and generalized the accusation of this singular squirrel to all the squirrels as the enemy of my garden. Only if they're not here, I would have a beautiful, orderly garden. The ego ranted in the next second. Then I noticed an unpleasant body sensation co-arising with these thoughts. My stomach was a fist that made a defensive wall between the squirrel squadron and me. And there was a subtler but undeniable yucky feeling about myself beneath that anger. You know, I think it was the Buddha who said, you will never be punished for your anger. You will only be punished by your anger. I'm not sure about the source. Even though these thoughts were generated as a reaction to protect my garden, they didn't feel good in the body. I didn't like the fist in the stomach. And I didn't like the person who wished genocide of the squirrels in order to preserve my garden. Then I heard my heart, my dear heart, cry out, the anger and fear do not tell you your truth. So in the next moment, I came out of my stupor and saw the squirrel as if for the first time. You know, until then I wasn't really seeing the squirrel. My attachment to see the tulips bloom and for the flower pots to be left unravaged 
obscure the truth about the squirrels and the truth about the garden and of course the truth about me. In my reactivity, the perception of the squirrel was the dis- as the destroyer of my garden. My garden. And seeing this, I could then laugh at the absurdity of believing I own this tiny bit of earth. This tiny bit of earth, as they say in Japan, as big as a cat's forehead. Well, that morning, watching these thoughts and feelings, the, be- the body sensations rapidly unfolding, I thought, oh, this is how racism happens. Even if I have done a lot of inner work around racism, even if the thoughts lasted just a few seconds, for sure I had racist thoughts against the squirrels. I looked at the squirrel from the point of view of wanting to guard my gun, my garden, investing in the illusion of the ownership of the land. And the squirrel's need to survive is a mere inconvenience. And then stereotyping all squirrels as threats to my garden and frustrators of my dreams, of my desire for order and control, for my benefits. You know, much of the learning in anti-racism circle was about deaths how the white settlers justified and normalized the slavery and genocide of the native people from the point of view of guarding the whites' benefits, whether it is the ownership of property or commerce. In seeing the squirrel, I was just thinking about me. Coming out of the stupor, So then I observed the little gray-brown creature, now with interest, separate from my needs. This creature was at least a hundred times smaller than me, flittering on the table, looking around for her safety, or something good to eat, or perhaps for some material for her nest, for the babies. Utejaniya, a Burmese monk, said, we must look at life as it is, as it is, and come into intimate contact with it. Finally, I was able to do that. When we do that, wisdom reveals itself. The garden, this little bit of earth, doesn't really belong to me. In fact, dirt is something I return to when I die. I know close to nothing about the squirrels with whom we have been sharing the land. My self-centered attachment to my garden melting away, I observe the particulars of the squirrel with a desire to know more. 
black beady eyes, larger in proportion to its face, little petals of semi-translucent ears, fluffy animated tail, and oh, the claws, tiny but so adept and strong, they can run up and down, upside down on the tree trunk and dig into my pots. When I paid attention to the details of this particular one squirrel, I began to feel close to her, like discovering a long-lost friend, even though I was the one that was lost. That squirrel has its own distinct life, her own story of birth, survival, and death. How does the inside of the little nest on a precarious branch look like? How does she find Aikman in the winter through the thick snow and ice? I have no idea. How does she nurse her babies? How do they look like? What does she see with these big dark eyes when she sees me? In observing her aliveness, her unique features, and becoming interested in how she and her clan survive, I developed a whole new appreciation of them. This one little squirrel matters. She belongs here as much as I do. Her life is not separate from mine. And by simply being a squirrel, she taught me about my ignorance. I needed this squirrel to wake up. I always loved the story of an old woman putting starfish back to the sea one by one. Probably many of you heard about it. There was a storm, and thousands and thousands of starfish washed up on the shore, and they were drying up. When the passerby saw the old woman gently throwing the starfish back to the sea, one by one, he asked, Why are you doing that? There are so many. It's too many. It's useless. And an old woman replied, it makes difference to this starfish. And she went back to her task. Do you think it made a difference to that squirrel that I became interested in her as an individual squirrel in her particularities? Well, it for sure made a difference to me. Now, when we are on the spiritual path, sometimes we are confused about the significance of being a separate individual, all the ways that make us different and unique, and the significance of our desire for unity, of shared values and visions. We all want freedom, but 
Freedom means different things if you are a prisoner or if you are a disabled person on a wheelchair or if you are a dancer or if you are a day laborer or if you are a meditator or if you are not interested in becoming a meditator. We all want to be happy, but how we find it is unique to each person. And this is so easy to overlook. This kind of confusion is revealed even in in the middle-class liberal attitude of valuing our similarities. We find safety and comfort in our alikeness. Noticing differences bring up uneasiness. Do you remember the feeling you had the last time you became aware of a new difference with your partner or trusted friend? In search for similarities and oneness, we dismiss significant details that make each of us unique. We used to think, and maybe some people still think, being colorblind is a good thing. Even recently someone told me, I don't see you any different than me from me. And he meant it as a compliment and invitation. But the effect was feeling invisible and disenfranchised. When I say I'm from Japan, people try to connect with something they know about about it, about Japan or Japanese people. And many people tell me about the trip they had or the stay they had. Or some Japanese people they know, and sometimes they say, do you know so-and-so? <laughs> or how much they love certain Japanese art. And that's the way they let me know that they have a favorite opinion of Japan and its people. And I have done the same. I used to live in Italy, and and I have a huge nostalgia for it. When I overhear people speaking in Italian, I want to say, I used to live there, and then I try on my bad Italian. Ciao! Come stai! <laughs> it's innocent and sweet. But I stopped doing that because on the receiving end, it highlights how other I am. Instead of finding and caring about my particularities, preconceived notions about a culture and its people from their point of view are imposed on me. In this kind of cultural moment, if we don't hurry up and bridge the perceived differences, we are left with edginess of unfamiliarity. But this moment of discomfort is the crucial moment to investigate what is really true about me, about this person in this moment. By leaning into the discomfort, we learn to access our authentic goodwill to connect. 
And we may even recognize with humility the truth of how little we know. It's probably more genuine to say, I have no idea about your experience in Japan. Is there something you'd like to tell me? Now, that's a real invitation. So, in each of us as a human being, there is an inherent movement towards unity, towards oneness, and just as powerful and undeniable truth of our uniqueness in our particularities. And when one is denied at the expense of the other, we are diminished and restricted. We are not free. This becomes a crucial question for relationships and communities. When we listen to the pull towards unity, to experience the ecstatic bondlessness, we make the particulars disappear. And then, sometime later, shaken by the inner conflict of the differences. Has that ever happened to you? We confuse feeling safe and wanting to be closer with not discerning the particulars of each person or each thing. We realize it is the particular that makes us really love that person. So true, true love lies not, not only in willingness to notice the particulars, but valuing them for what they are. We have to value them, the particulars. It's challenging to learn and value the other's particulars when we haven't fully embraced our own uniqueness. If we are not secure in our self-knowledge, our own truth of who we are, doubt comes up. The fear of losing ourselves arises. What do we really have to lose? We forget that in the very momentary losing of ourselves, a new learning can take place. It's true. It's true. When we finally acknowledge how little we know and open ourselves to new learning, we don't know what we are going to learn. It could be something good, or it could be something bad. And that's the risk we take. In getting to know the squirrel, I let go of my tulips. And I let go of an orderly deck. And I'm willing to repot over and over and over. I figured a trick though. (laughs) (laughs) And who knows? I might find myself buying a bag of peanuts in the shelf. The more grounded we are in the awareness of our particularities and inherent goodness, the more we are able to notice and welcome the particularities of others. So there's nothing selfish about deeply knowing and valuing what makes each of us unique. 
How else can we value that of others? The Buddha said, Upon searching through the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than yourself, and that person is not to be found anywhere, you yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserves your love and your affection. As much as anybody in the entire universe deserves your love and affection. Here's another facet of the paradox. We, as a form, as body, exist on the relative plane. The survival instincts happen on this plane because survival is about keeping the body alive. The self gets constructed, constructed around this drive for survival. So all our fears and anxieties stem from that. At the same time, we are also not the body. We are awareness not bounded by the physical form. The awareness reveals to us that reality includes the vast mystery beyond the apparent world of form. We get an inkling of formless. Some call it true nature or God, spirit, bodhicitta. The paradox is that we need the form, this very body, with its instincts for survival and its particular experiences in order to gain insights about the formless. Experience is located in time and space. It's not somebody else's experience. It is lived through you. It's not interchangeable. Sometime deep in our practice of our awareness, such as on retreat, our uniqueness, our particulars, don't seem to matter. We feel so open and connected. We feel we are one. I have felt that myself. Unity is ecstatic. Dissolving the separation of self and others is a precious experience, one that feeds and inspires our path. But then it does not erase the truth of our uniqueness in each one of us. We also live on the plane of earth and form, in this very body, a facet of unity express, expresses itself in the particular. Unity is not eliminating differences. And this is a paradox the mind has difficulty grappling. So if, if it feels like it doesn't make sense, 
it's okay. Just kind of receive it in the body. See if there's any resonance. So we must learn to hold both the longing for unity and the gift of uniqueness. Our true nature is not found out there somewhere. But in this particulars of this body, this blade of glass, as the Whitman said, in the uniqueness of each experience when attended with interest and care. So, in closing, I'd like to share this poem. You heard this before many times. It's a very well-known poem, Wild Geese. But I'd like to hear it and receive it as if, as if you're hearing for the first time. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about your despair and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting. Over and over, announcing your place, in the family of things. So, before um, comments or questions, um, I'd like us to try a little exercise. We have time. So, um, take a few deep breaths, please. And maybe be mindful of being in this body. And we are also being with one another in this community. And I'd like you to reflect on what makes you unique. Not in generalities, but in particulars of you, about you.
And if you have difficulty with a question, you can reflect on what gets in the way of knowing your weakness. And when you have some sense, please open your eyes so I know you have something. And it's a great reflection to continue um, some other time. So then, um, then I would like you to turn to your neighbor, somebody you don't know or you don't know very well, introduce yourself, your name, and tell that person something you like that person to know about you, and take turns. And it doesn't have to be uniqueness. Do you, those few moments when you were angry with the squirrels, do you think your awareness of the moments when you're angry will help when you become well, being just aware of them, perhaps monitoring to monitoring them, and I don't know how to frame this right, but I think that if I become aware of the small moments, that I won't have larger moments of anger. I will not have larger moments of anger? Perhaps, if I'm aware of the small moments of frustration. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Because... You know, we, anger arises no matter what. You know, I have, if somebody step on my toe, I go, mm, don't do that. You know, it's, the body wants to preserve itself. So it, anger arises. But then meeting that anger with awareness. I'm not the anger. I'm not lost in the anger. I am the awareness, noticing the anger. So, yeah, it, it, it's it's a great practice from larger, like you said, bigger anger from happening. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. I'd like to share another story about problems with squirrels. <laughs> but in doing that, I'm going to ask you to transform yourself into a little different culture because this is a northern Minnesota story. So it's full of people who are very avid hunters and fishermen, which is not a very Buddhist nature. Anyway, these folks are living in Moorhead, and they were absolutely invaded by squirrels. And the husband, uh, being a hunter, knew what the answer was. So after a few years, they both actually got tired of the carnage of killing all those squirrels. And so the wife went out and talked to the squirrels and said, look, we can deal with some of you but we can't deal with all of you. So this year, it's okay, but then you have to move on, and we will, accomp- we will uh, deal with having uh, a pair of you, and that's okay. And that's what happened. Uh, wow. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, 
www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.